follow your passion is the worst advice that anyone could ever give you. Never follow your passion. Instead, follow your curiosity, right? If you're curious about something, find a way to test it out and to hypothesize on it to see if it really is what you should be doing. And if you find a curiosity that you love, then go for it, right? And I was just curious about venture capital. And I was like, well, the only way to do it is to do it. So I just tried to start doing it. And that was, that was how I got that internship. And then eventually my full-time job, which I was able to like, you know, work at Microsoft and do that. This is Better Wealth with Caleb Williams. All right, everybody, you're in for a treat today. I have, a, we both have a dear friend, Brian Wish, and he's connected me with some amazing people. And Michael, you are going to keep the streak alive. Uh, so it is a pleasure to have you on the Better Wealth Show. Just very much looking forward to hearing about your amazing background. You've written a book. There's so much that we can learn. And so without further ado, welcome to the Better Wealth Show, man. Thanks so much, Caleb. It's great to be here. And you know, Brian knows good people. So it's and um, I'm excited that he connected us and that I'm on the show. I'm calling in from um, the storage room of my office. So that was always on the grind. <laughs> One of the things that I, I asked you early on is I was like, give me like a like a 90 second overview of your background. And then when you started going, I, I was like, man, I wish I could hit record without breaking up your like flow because it was like uh, on the money. So I'm going to do the same thing because I think it's a really good way to intro who you are. Um, if we were on an elevator that had a lot of stories and we were going up with no interruption and I said, Michael, tell me a little bit about your background. Go. Yeah, I mean, if I were to give you the five key beats, it'd say I grew up in Seattle. My parents immigrated here from Ghana, West Africa, and my grandmother took care of me. Um, she inspired me to make a nonprofit that eventually won the National Caring Award, which I got alongside Pope Francis and Tecumbe and Tumbo in 2015. Uh, that was while I was in high school. It's kind of a nerd, so I went off to college at Harvard. was supposed to be a doctor and did really badly freshman year, so I decided to study philosophy instead. Um, and I got a minor in computer science, where I learned how to code, learned technology, and eventually worked at Twitter and Microsoft. And after working, you know, two jobs and going to school on nights and weekends, pivoted into the venture capital fund. Uh, and today I live in Mountain View, building my own company, but also working as a chief of staff at another company. So always here for the growth um, and kind of the the guiding philosophy of my life is, you know, build something, but give it to people. So mm. don't just build and keep. Uh, build and give. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Because it's the ultimate irony is that we're all going to die someday. And one, I heard a quote one one time that it's like the greatest leaders are the ones that give of themselves, like give it all away. And and at your funeral, you're not going to be known for your accomplishments. You're going to be known for what you gave of the people that knew you, the people that were inspired by you. And so, is that like the philosophy, or is there more to that? Well, I think there's more to it. I think if you ask the question of, you know, looking back, what are people going to value most? I doubt someone's going to say, I wish I had done the job where I made $10,000 more a year, yep. right? The values that people have aren't going to be tied to, you know, material goods. They're going to be tied towards something more, which will probably be, you know, the people that they met, the experiences that they had, um, or something on top of that, maybe the, the people that they impacted. And so for me, build is important because you do have to have a sustainable scaffold and a sustainable structure to be able to have the resources and the mental frame to give, right? To give healthily. And so I think building is important, but giving is just as important. 
Yep. You know, we were born with zero dollars in our pockets. We're probably going to die with zero dollars in our pockets too, or at least that would be ideal. I'm I'm really curious about your upbringing. So you came over uh, in, immigrant, and a lot of times people um, have said like, okay, when you when you come to the United States, you look at it, you have a different paradigm than maybe someone that was born here. Can you speak on uh, on to that? And then can we talk about the nonprofit that you started? Because it sounds like you started that in high school and uh, got a lot of recognition, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, so I'll give the context. So both my parents were born in Ghana and West Africa. Uh, they moved to Canada, which is where both my siblings were born. And then they moved down to the U.S. about 25 years ago, which is where I was born. And so having seen them go through you know, lives and struggles, one of my first memories was of my parents when they first moved to the U.S. trying to you know, get American degrees and like, be able to kind of work in the American system. Right. My dad was a civil engineer. My mom eventually worked in healthcare compliance. So making sure hospitals were following, you know, HIPAA, the Healthcare Information Privacy and Protection Act. Um, and all the while, as they were going to school and getting their jobs, my grandmother was my primary caretaker. Mm. Uh, and I still remember the day that my grandmother tipped out into my bedroom and like reached under my bed and like stole a teddy bear as I was sleeping and then like tipped out, out of the bedroom. Uh, the reason why is because she would always go to Ghana every winter time, you know. Going coming from West Africa where it's like sun hundred, you know, percent of the time to Seattle where it's literally gray all the time. Yeah. She was like, you know, I'm gonna get out of here in the winter time. And whenever she left every winter, she would take teddy bears with her. And she would take those teddy bears to the village where she grew up. So the hospitals and the schools and the orphanages, you know, would love when my grandmother came back because she'd have all these gifts for them. Uh so of course, fast forward, you know, through my upbringing, gets to about sixth grade, and my grandmother passes away. And my family's thinking, what can we do to honor her memory and her legacy? And we think to ourselves, okay, maybe when we go to her funeral, we'll just bring a couple of teddy bears with, them, with us. So my sister, who's the co-founder of the nonprofit, put up posters at her high school when she was in high school and said, like, hey, give us teddy bears. We're going to Ghana you know, for my grandmother's funeral. We're going to do this last big thing because this is what she used to do all the time. I think we got like 5,000 teddy bears. Okay. We expected to get like a couple hundred. <laughs> right. So everyone was donating these teddy bears and we kind of found this interesting niche of wow like these are old things that people in the u.s don't really you know care about too much you know 15 years later after they're 18 but if you take them to ghana to some kid at the hospital who's you know battling malaria or something else or river blindness whatever it might be it's incredibly impactful and so we took this idea in 2007 and made it into the, the full nonprofit. right i think to your direct question which is kind of what's the difference of growing up as an immigrant versus growing up born here versus second, third, or fourth generation. Um, I was fortunate to be able to go to Ghana very frequently, cool. at least once every two or three years. Uh, and being able and being kind of forced to see the disparities between my cousins who were a year or two older than me and what I had instilled in me a sense of you know desire to give back, almost a sense of responsibility. You know, I was here playing with my Xbox and my cousins didn't even have you know outlets to charge their Game Boys. Right. And it's just a completely different mindset and mentality to shift from every two or three years when you're, you know, growing up as a kid in Seattle. Uh, so it's very fortunate. And I think I realized that fortune from a very early age and wanted to use it to build something. It's re really interesting that you are mentioning this because I've had the honor of going and serving places overseas, even in the United States. And it's always like, I feel like we go to serve, but I'm the ultimate beneficiary because I'm going and I'm like, it, it puts in perspective that the fact that I don't worry about water or food or shelter 
like that's never been an issue ever tells you how wealthy and rich we are and um it would be interesting if every leader had like went over went overseas or went to serve how mm-hmm. their how their perspective and leadership in their life would would look like and i don't just mean leader as a ceo of a company like people that see themselves as leaders if yeah. they if they served i think it would be one of the best things you can do for being self-aware and, and for your gratitude. Well, it's so funny. One thing that we that we do with Hugs for Ghana, that's what the nonprofit is called. Now it's called Hugs for Blank, where that blank is any country because we have operations in five countries. Incredible. We do what's called voluntourism. So that. you volunteer, you know, by collecting these teddy bears and then you go on one of these trips. And yeah, you're a tourist and you're but you're also volunteering. And I think voluntourism has often had this negative connotation where it's like, oh, you're not really helping out. You're just going and doing you know, this selfish thing of getting experience. But there's a bunch of value, I think, to voluntourism because it shows you the world that you never would have seen, right? I mean, 50% of Americans don't even have a passport, let alone have they traveled to Ghana, West Africa, right? And so when I saw that stat you know, last year when I was writing my book, I was shocked. Uh, but it kind of gets to the point of exactly what you said. If people really travel outside of themselves, it doesn't have to be out of the country, but just outside of their own situations that they see for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's really going to revolutionize the way that they think and the way that our society can, can grow. Over 50% of Americans don't have passports? Yeah, I think it might be 40%. So I don't want to... Okay, yeah, I don't... Yeah. But it, it, it is like, it, it was like, like it, was, it was shocking. And this is like a US like government statistic from like the census. Wow. <laughs> I was so wow. surprised. That's incredible. Okay, so so I'm that's still going on, and people can people participate, give like how can people be a part of the nonprofit? Yeah, totally. So hugsfor.org is the website, um, or if you just go to my website, mikeravel.com. Of course, I link out to it because it's something I really care about, really passionate about for the last fifteen years. Um, but you can start a high school chapter. You can donate to a chapter. Um, you can donate funds or donate materials, goods, or whatever it might be. Uh, and we try to do trips every every year. Of course, with COVID, it was it's been it's been tough <laughs> to do international travel. Um, but you know, as things kind of open back up, uh, volunteering and hopefully volunteerism and philanthropy will also open back up. My man, that, this is so inspiring. I really appreciate you sharing this, and um, I, yeah, I I believe there's going to be people listening to this that it's going to give them the inspiration to maybe start something. It, it's it started so simple. It started yeah. so simple, and yet it's like you acted and how many people just don't implement, they don't like actually put themselves out there. And it's crazy to see the ripple effect. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And so um, you, you get into Harvard, um, you have aspirations to be a doctor and that doesn't, that doesn't turn out. When did you know that doctor wasn't for you? Did you know that pre Harvard and you wanted to impress people or like your parents or did you really want to be a doctor? And you're like, I just, it's not for me. You know, one number taught me that I didn't want to be a doctor. And that number was 2.9. That was my BA at the end of my freshman year <laughs> after being pre-med for a whole, you know, nine months. And I just remember I was, I learned how to code in high school. I like did AP computer science and I made an app company. So that was like in the back of my mind. And I used those skills to get an internship my first summer at Twitter where I was a software engineer. So I just remember sitting at this like super tall building in San Francisco looking out the window, like overseeing like the opera house and you can see like, the water in the distance. And I got an email that says, you've gotten your grades for the first year. And I was like, oh man, I probably aced it. Like, I'm so excited. Like, I can't wait to be a doctor. And I opened it and I was just devastated, right? Coming from the student who was almost a 4.0 all the time, 
you know, student body president, varsity debate captain, editor-in-chief of the newspaper. It was like kind of, you know, one of my first largest experiences with what I would call failure, right? Failure of self, failure of expectation, whatever it might be. Uh, so for me, I was just devastated. But there was one silver lining. And that was that there was one class where I'd gotten an A for my freshman year. And that was my philosophy class. So being the enterprising, lazy-ish guy I was, I was like, that's my new major. I'm just going to switch to the class where I, where I got an A. Uh, that was the impotence for why I studied philosophy. But I actually do think that had I gone back in time and chosen it all over again, I would have done it exactly the same way, that's even funny. without reading the transcript. Um, I think it's really hard and rare to find a subject that you really resonate with. And for me, knowing that I wanted to be in business that had you know a double or triple bottom line, where profit wasn't the only aim, but also helping the community, philosophy was a great way to think through how to do that and why to do that. And I truly believe that some of the best leaders are also great philosophers, right? Because if you really want to get people to come around your cause, you have to build you know a view of life, a view of a way of living that you convince other people to build towards, right? And so if you really have that mindset, you can be a great leader through being a good philosopher. I, I love that. And that you're taking philosophy, which is kind of like the blunt of a lot of people's jokes of like, oh, you got a philosophy major and you don't have any job, which I always find crazy to me because you're like, it's like critical thinking. So yep. really it's, if you had a sales and marketing course along with philosophy, you could be running any type of company because you're like right. taking deep classes and how to think critically. And um, I, I took, I think I took one or two philosophy classes and it was always, it was always fun because it was a lot of, I felt like it was a lot of debate and like critical thinking in class. And I love that because uh, reading's not really my forte, but participation, I, I was, I was above average when it came to per- participating in class. So I always appreciated classes with that. Um, question for you, um, Harvard, Harvard's like the top school in yeah. America, okay, um, yeah. which i.e. the world, did that help get you jobs at like how? It, I'm assuming people didn't ask for your like grades. Maybe they did. I yeah. went to the University of Stevens Point, which is like not a big deal from a standpoint of school recognition, whatever. And so mm-hmm. I can confidently say I've been an entrepreneur. Like education, I'm grateful for it, but it hasn't really helped me like get in any rooms. Has your okay. education opened doors, and it does it continue to open doors to this day? Yeah, so I'll say two things. I'll ask you a question, but I first want to go back to the philosophy because I really do think that like, I'll just give you an example of one of my assignments, which totally hits on your point. My my first philosophy assignment was read this paper from Plato, right? Which was written like in whatever BC and find a flaw with his argument. And they're like, wait, this is Plato. Like this is the guy. This is like the philosophy dude. And you want me to find a problem with what he wrote. Right. And so that almost was kind of empowering because I was like, well, if I can poke holes in Plato and Socrates and Kant and Hume, like probably like the person down the street who's like, you know, babbling on something that's so important, I can probably find a flaw in that and also build my own arguments that are kind of bulletproof as well. So that's kind of the philosophy. To your question on Harvard, I mean, I think I, I heard this advice slash this feedback and thought perspective from a, from a friend of mine, a professor who graduated uh, from Harvard and then also went on to teach there. And he said, Harvard will get you in the door, but it will never get you the job. Meaning you still have to, you know, come prepared, right? Or there's the the quote of like, uh, what is it? Opportunities when luck meets preparation. Yep. I think Harvard is the type of place that will make you more lucky, but it won't necessarily make you more prepared. Uh, so 
I think that that's kind of my big my big view on it. Um, I think I'm lucky in that you know I can send a hundred cold emails and say I'm a Harvard grad in the first line, but if my email is long, no one's going to respond. Yeah. <laughs> so there's yeah. still like this interesting balance of like it might get your email open, but it's not going to get the response. And ultimately, that's what I love about entrepreneurship is the market will decide. Um, yep. But I also love this concept of increasing your luck surface because again, it's like, oh, you got lucky. Yes. And how many high schoolers do you know that were proactive enough to start a nonprofit? And like, so yes, you got lucky, but you increased your ability to get lucky. Um, yeah. And I think Jim Collins also writes about that, about great companies. They all experience quote unquote luck. It's what you do with that. And yeah. um, so I, I 100% echo that. And it's funny. It's like, I'm, I'm iffy when it comes to college. I think some, a lot of people go and that probably shouldn't. And then some people like should definitely go. But I, I think it's, it's like supply and demand. If you can get into the colleges that are door openers, like Harvard, Stanford, whatnot, um, yeah. there's a, it's not even close. It's, it's almost on two different levels. And so yeah. from a supply and demand standpoint, like congratulations. And, um, I think, I think the data doesn't, doesn't lie when it comes to that. Well, here's a question that one of my really good friends asked me. We do like an annual trip just to kind of stay close. And it's all of the roommates plus like all of our really close friends. Uh, so we have like anyway, 12 to 16 people. And she asked this group on the trip, she's like, if your you know, future children came up to you and said, I want to skip college, what would you say? Right? And this is all of us as Harvard students sitting in you know, a cabin. And you know, 90% of us were like, no, like we wouldn't, we wouldn't want our kids to do that. And we got into this big debate about why you know, we were so averse to that versus why we think you know, college is necessary or not necessary. So anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts or perspectives on it. And then I can share some of the ones that, that we heard from that cabin. Yeah, so I think no, number one, I think a, it comes down to data from a standpoint. Or are is going to college? Is it's getting? Is it getting you ahead with the time that you're spending and the extra money that you're making? And then the other thing is, I think a lot of people go with a lack of clarity, and they go because mm-hmm. they feel like this pressure of like, okay, I I want I need to go because I'm starting to be you know people are asking, and I feel like I'm going to be let like let down. Um, what I love about college is it forces you to like continue to learn. It forces you to increase your network and it forces you to up level your game. And I mean, I have a college degree and I will say that indirectly I'm where I am because of that. Cause it gave me three years to be like, okay, I'm going to continue to network and connect with people. And I got to work at a bank during that same time. Um, mm-hmm. I just think when you look at the cost and you look at a lot of people that have lack of clarity, they're going and the piece of paper and the education itself is not yeah. what's going to make you successful. I think it is in the network and the mindset. And my mm-hmm. dad has a PhD in molecular biology and he, he was like, Caleb, I could care less about your grades. Make sure that every teacher knows that you care about learning and make sure you mm-hmm. show up to learn. So all that to say, I'm a big fan of education. I think higher education in a lot of cases, minus Harvard, Stanford's like the bigger schools, I think mm-hmm. they really have to have a value conversation because when you start looking at 30, 40, 50, 60, 70,000 dollars a year and mm-hmm. three, four, five potential years, mm-hmm. um, I look at that as an investment and I say, what if I had an entrepreneurial kid that worked for three people for free yeah. and got to travel with them and be in the boardroom and got that got those connections? That could be a door opener as well. With that said, I think it comes down to the proactiveness of the of the kid. Well, I think Mark Twain has his hilarious quote. He said and never let my schooling get in the way of my education. It's good. Right. Yeah. And saying that school is not where you get educated. It's the individual that educates themselves 
potentially through school. And I think that's exactly what you said is what we what we landed on in this cabin is like, I think Harvard and, and Yale and Sanford and whatever else are great in that they're liberal arts institutions. So I was able to switch my major at the end of my freshman year. Had I gone to University of Washington, which actually would have been cheaper for me to go there. Well, actually, Harvard was cheaper overall because of financial aid. But in most cases, it would be cheaper for you to go to school in state than to go out of state. I wouldn't have been able to switch my major. I would have been stuck on this be my track. I would have been, you know, not happy, not able to be intellectually curious and to explore, you know, opportunities and options. So it, it's really interesting just to look at at that too, you know, having that liberal arts education, liberal arts meaning you can literally study whatever you want. And as late as your senior fall, declare your major or switch your major. I mean, that freedom is I think what made the education so educating. And the network and the alumni, <laughs> like yeah, that's yeah, also yeah. Like Did you always see yourself as an entrepreneur? Did you like go into college thinking I'm an entrepreneur, or did you just did the nonprofit thing just happen and you just got momentum and you're like you didn't think I mean, much the, of it? The nonprofit thing definitely kind of just happened, but it really influenced the way I developed. Right from age 12 onwards, I was always running teams, running you know having weekly team meetings, like making friends through the work that we were doing versus just like hanging out. So it kind of was, it's, it's always kind of been in my blood. I remember, I think Steve Jobs gave a commencement speech at Stanford. I don't remember what year it was. And in one of his quotes or one of his lessons from the speech, he's like, remember that this world is just made by people who are just like you. Right. And that just like was mind boggling to me. So like from then on for like years, whenever I like sat in a car, I was like, oh, like other people like me built this car. And I like saw a chair that was like, you know, on display. I was like, other people made that chair. Or I see like the Mona Lisa, like it started to, to unabstract the object from the people who actually created it, right? And I think once you kind of like remove that abstraction, you realize like, well, why am I not the one who's creating the computer? And it's like, okay, well, I just to put time into learning the skills, then I can do it. You know, I can put time into carpentry and I can make a chair, right? And so I think from from that perspective, it's entrepreneurship is really the only kind of logical outcome. Or even entrepreneurship, where you're running yeah. teams or projects with a company. You don't have to make something yourself. Uh, but for me, that was always kind of a natural step because of that early realization through the nonprofit and running that team. I, I love that, man. And then you, from Harvard, you got a job at Microsoft. You were working at Twitter while you were going to Harvard. Did, am I getting the timeline right? So the timeline was I, I interned at Twitter my first summer. And then my second summer and third summer, I interned at Microsoft. Got it. And Kind of the the trick, it's so funny because I just remember going to Harvard, everyone was getting an internship in like November, right? This is an internship for the summertime. So they get their internships like eight months in advance. Then I had friends who sophomore year got their job that they're going to have post senior year, right? Like two and a half years in advance. And just being in this environment, you like talk to your friend as soon as you get back on campus from the summer and everyone's like, what are you doing next summer? Right. And that's just the conversation. So there was always kind of this like rat race, but nonetheless, I had my job postgraduate, my postgraduate job by the time I finished my summer junior year, which made me kind of really enjoy senior year and just have a lot of fun. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I worked at Microsoft full-time after graduating. Um, and I was originally working as a product manager, which meant that I led a team of engineers to build products. Uh, and my product was probably the most exciting at Microsoft. Not really, but it was uh, Windows IoT. So we were trying to put the Windows operating system on everything that wasn't a phone or a laptop. So Windows on light bulbs, Windows on refrigerators, wow. Windows cars. Uh, I think we had like a billion plus dollars that we were do, 
doing in revenue, which is kind of crazy. Uh, and our team was like 20 people. So I did the math one day and I was like, oh my God, I'm responsible for like tens of millions of dollars, <laughs> which was like absurd to think about. It's like this kid who just graduated from college, like it just turned 21, it's 2022. Uh, like, anyways, just a lot of responsibility. Um, but I didn't feel intellectually stimulated, even though I had kind of this great white space opportunity to grow um, the team and to grow the product. Um, I think I think people are scratching their their head right now and saying, okay, what what about that was not stimulating? Like, was it just, was it that you didn't feel like there was a purpose behind what you were doing or was it not challenging enough? Well, I'll tell you some of the outcomes of what changed in my life when I got my first job. So when I was in college, I used to carry around notebooks with me every single day. And I would just write down random thoughts and just like creativity was flowing. I would write poetry. I would write like, I love business. So I'd try to find problems in the world to identify and solve with businesses, you know, write down, draw pictures. Entrepreneurial, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then I I went to work at Microsoft and I would still carry the notebooks every day. And there'd be like weeks where I'd have nothing to put in a notebook. Right. And I could think to myself, like, I I don't think this is the right place for me. Right. I mean, I think there are definitely people who can still feel feel the drive and the energy um, from working at a corporation like that, but I, I wasn't feeling it. So I knew I had to do something different. I think whenever you're in one of those situations, you can either, you know, stay there, uh, or you could change. <laughs> and I'm the type of person who's going to push for change. And I believe if we reference back to Steve Jobs talk at Samford, um, which I've only seen like 20 times, he talks about if you're it, what, what's the quote when you're like every day, if, if you're looking yourself in the mirror and it's like yeah. this concept of you're only going to live once. And exactly. not be afraid to make the change. If you look in the mirror every day or you wake up and you think, and not excited for the day and you do that too many days in a row, you, something has to change. Yeah. And I think I started to feel that. Um, I guess I really am embodying the, the Jobsian philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> but um, my solution was actually, rather than just quitting my job and going to you know travel the world, which people sometimes do, um, I decided to get a second job. So I'd work at Microsoft from nine to five. And I worked at this venture capital fund from five to nine. Mm-hmm. And that fund was based out of New York. And they would invest in startups with female founders, Latinx founders, and Black founders. So super mission aligned. And they found that those groups get about 20% of all venture funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, on average, like female founders get 12% or 13% in a good year. And so there was really mission aligned to try and find these underfunded founders uh, who were super talented and give them the, the, the capital to build their businesses. Uh, so that's what I would do after work. And I just had so much more fun doing that that started creeping into my actual work time to the point where I was spending more time on this like side job, which was unpaid for a lot of it Wow, on my actual job. And I was like, okay, I should probably try to do this like full time. And I realized that Microsoft had a venture capital fund. So I was able to luckily pivot from my you know job as a program manager to work in venture capital at Microsoft. And that was kind of the perfect storm of like, entrepreneurial interest and also being able to to really make an impact beyond just building products for for you know people around the world and is that what you're currently doing now so there's another pivot in the store okay i just want <laughs> can i point out one other thing is so you worked you worked at microsoft you're probably getting paid well then on the side you're working 20 plus hours are you did you say for free yeah it was unpaid i i just want to point that out and highlight that because i'm a big 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 proponent of going toward the sources of of like who you can learn from and like you gain so much through that but like mm-hmm. you i mean you were you had a lot of you had a great resume and and you were willing to do that the humility and yet the the foresight that you saw of like that's brilliant 
And I'm here sitting here. I'm like, dude, I, I, that's insane that you had that opportunity because you are in rooms, you're meeting with people, you're seeing how the game works, which isn't the barrier to entry in venture is huge. And now yeah. you're like in it. And so I just want to, I just want to highlight that. And it's like, I love that you mentioned that. And that's part of your story. Well, I'll say two things. Um, the first thing is a mentor of mine hates the phrase, follow your passion. Yeah. <laughs> and she always says, follow your passion is the worst advice that anyone could ever give you. Never follow your passion. Instead, follow your curiosity, right? If you're curious about something, find a way to test it out and to hypothesize on it to see if it really is what you should be doing. And if you find a curiosity that you love, then go for it, right? And I was just curious about venture capital. And I was like, well, the only way to do it is to do it. So I just tried to start doing it. And that was, that was how I got that internship. And then eventually my full-time job, which I was able to like, you know, work at Microsoft and do that. So I actually just quit that job four or five weeks ago. Uh, because again, follow your curiosity. Um, my learning peak kind of started to to plateau. Um, and so I, I came to work at one of our portfolio companies as the chief of staff to the CEO. Uh, and then eventually we'll be going back to Harvard for business school this upcoming fall. So my life is still, you know, developing in a bunch of different ways. But I think ultimately the, the big lesson for me has been, you know, follow your passions. Well, don't follow your passions, but follow your curiosities instead. I love that, man. And can I ask how old you are? Uh, 24, about to turn 25 in October. So it's incredible. Things. It's incredible. What's, uh, is, what's your book on and why did you write a book? Yep. Yep. So I, I mentioned this briefly when I was working at the venture capital fund, it's called Harlem Capital. They're investing in female founders, black and Latinx founders. And as I was working there, and then eventually started working at M12, I was realizing that a lot of the stories that we tell ourselves about entrepreneurs tend to be uh, biased in terms of you know, think of the five most successful startup founders that you could think of. Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, you know, maybe Steve Jobs, we talked about a couple of times, um, you know, all amazing founders, but I never saw myself in those founders, right? For a variety of reasons. They didn't come up, they didn't grow up in, you know, Ghana. They weren't from Seattle. Uh, you know, if I talked to my sisters or some of my female roommates when I was in college, they were like, yeah, who's the most successful female founder in the US? They couldn't name one. Sarah Blakely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sarah Blakely. Yeah. Now, as of 2021, right? The, the youngest uh, IPO uh, female CEO. Yeah. Uh, doing amazing stuff, by the way, with Spanx. Yeah. But nonetheless, I mean, that, that, was, that was my thought is how can we find the stories of super successful underrepresented founders and put them on a pedestal, right? So I, I specifically was like, all right, if I want to find Black founders, let me go to Africa and see like who are the most successful African startup founders. Like if I want to find like underrepresented female founders, like let me go to Southeast Asia where there's like a whole bunch of companies that are like run with female executives that are like crushing it and significantly outperforming their male counterparts in the same industry. So that was what the book is about. It's called Unlocking Unicorns, uh, where a unicorn is a billion dollar startup or a billion dollar company. Uh, And it's about startup stories in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. Um, So I, I... you know, spent about a year during the pandemic when everything closed down. Uh, and I saw all the, the tweets and memes that was like, Newton discovered gravity during his pandemic. What are you going to do? And I was like, I guess maybe I'll try writing a book. <laughs> that's, awesome. that's what Newton did. Um, and this, that was the outcome. So this, this story interviews, uh, the founders interviews their teams, understands the key lessons that you can learn from them, and then packages it in kind of this 200-word uh, saga. Uh, for for people to kind of learn the stories of underrepresented founders, I love it. 
I would encourage everyone that's watching this or listening to this to to buy a copy, and we'll definitely create links. I'm I'm assuming Amazon or wherever you want to drive people. Yeah. Make sure oh, yeah. to drive links there. Um, without reading the book, what is like the one of the be- one, two, or three big takeaways that you learned by writing this to be like, wow, like I'm shocked by this, or oh, this is just highlighting what I knew to be true. So I'll tell you a, a story that was surprising to me. Um, and it was actually the story of Kareem, which is, uh, it's, it's a taxi service based out of the Middle East. Uh, it's kind of like Uber, but in, in the Middle East uh, and North Africa. So that's kind of the region that, they, that they've kind of owned. Um, anyways, but it was founded by this guy named Mudasir. And Mudasir used to work at McKinsey. You know, he was like almost on track to be a partner. Uh, and, and McKinsey asked him like, hey, Mudasir, we want you to go and open up the Pakistan office of McKinsey. And of course, when you want to open up a new office at McKinsey, you have to just see like, are there enough companies to actually support a McKinsey office? So he went to Pakistan and was like asking around to see like, what are the sizes of businesses here? Like how many businesses are there in Pakistan that are worth a billion dollars or more? And he realized that there were literally none. I mean, there's a few in like oil and gas and like the energy space. Other than that, there were no billion dollar companies in Pakistan at all. Right. And so he went back to McKinsey and instead of saying, we can't open an office here, he said, hey, I'm quitting because I'm going to go make a company in Pakistan. It's going to be the next billion dollar company. So that was the story of how Kareem started. And he pulled along one of his McKinsey, uh, like other co-workers to come work with him. And that co-worker was, you know, at the time had a, had a big health scare and was thinking, like, what am I going to do with my life? Like, if I if he had passed away, he would have felt like he was, you know, hadn't contributed anything. So it was a perfect mission alignment. And from the beginning, the company was super mission aligned to want to revolutionize capital access opportunity in the Middle East uh, and North Africa. So they built this company, scaled it hugely. There's a whole host of other details in the book about how they did that and what made it so successful. But the most surprising thing was at the very end of the chapter, you realize what happens to Kareem. Uh, and Mudasir gets offered you know, from Uber, who says, we want to buy your operations in the Middle East. So it'll still operate as Kareem, but Uber will own it. And, you know, Kareem, you know, he, he has this, he has this, Mudasir has this huge discussion. Do I sell my company to Uber, you know, the big bad wolf that they've been fighting, or do I keep trying to run it for myself? And he eventually chooses to sell the company. And so if you ask him, why did you sell Kareem to Uber? He'll say, you know, I could have kept running it and I could have kept doing a great job, but I really wanted to create an exit opportunity for the employees at my company. And when he sold Kareem to Uber, he made 300 millionaires in Pakistan. And those billionaires are the people who are now making companies and investing in companies and creating this new entrepreneurial ecosystem, where if you look at you know the biggest country for entrepreneurship in the Middle East, it's Pakistan, largely because of Kareem and because Mudasir decided to sell the company to Uber. Right. And so it just it's this 10 year saga that's like super mission aligned, like starts from day one of trying to like create opportunities and use its business as a means for doing that. Uh, it's, I just thought that was a phenomenal story. I had never heard of it. Um, and it's definitely not what you think of when you think of kind of American exceptionalism, uh, because how many people would sell their companies so that their employees could have money to invest in other companies? I mean, it just didn't seem aligned in the same way. So I, I thought that was fascinating. Is, is there any like documentary or like Netflix documentary on this? No, nothing. <laughs> and so how did you discover, like, did you just do your research and you're like, oh, like there's this like, like, how did you, did, how do you, did you just Google, like, explain to me how you discovered this? I mean, each chapter of the book took so much effort 
because the stories, oftentimes they weren't even in English. So I can't tell you the number of times I spent a weekend like listening to a story in like Korean and then like having my phone open on Google Translate and trying to translate it in in real time. And this is like a two-hour lecture from like the CEO of some company, right? So for instance, the guy behind BTS, the, the pop band, he's also featured in my book. He doesn't speak very much English or when he does, he doesn't record it and post online. So all of his large lectures are in Korean. So I had to find translated versions or translate it myself. Uh, so I, I went direct to the source or tried to get as close as I could for a lot of these stories and either interviewed the team directly, interviewed this EO directly, or just listened to like hours and hours and hours of content, like 20, 30, 40, 40 hours of content to write any, a chapter. Any common trait among the leaders that have been successful? I mean, everyone does it so differently. I mean, there's this company called Oyo uh, in um, India. It's kind of like Airbnb, but in India, I guess, is, is the closest synonym. Um, he just has like this like relentlessness. Like he like yeah. never stops and he's like super yeah. ambitious. Whereas like, you know, Murdusir from Kareem is, is, yeah, also relentless, but he has kind of an aim and has an end. You know, it's not trying to be the largest company. He's trying to empower the ecosystem. So it's they all have different perspectives, but I think what was true that I saw is they're all true to themselves. Yep. And you'll notice that each chapter has a theme aligned to it. Uh, and the themes actually really do kind of align to the individual yep. uh, because they have lived their own personality and their whole truth uh, for, for quite some time. Last question, it will kind of be, I have the legacy question that I usually end the podcast with. So this will kind of be like back-to-back questions. The legacy question goes like this. If this is your last day on earth and you're with the people that you love the the most and you can't give them any of your books or videos or whatnot, what are you sharing with them? And then my other question is, why do you do what you do? Because what you've accomplished and your mission is insanely clear to me. And it's an honor to know you. And I can't imagine what you're going to do the next quarter of your life. Um, and so that will be kind of the last question. We'll have all the links to how people can find out more, buy the book, support the ministry, uh, the nonprofit. And so with that, um, the floor is yours, man. Yeah. So for the legacy question, I mean, if it was my last 30 seconds with my family, I hope I can make a joke that would make them laugh. Right? I'd love to go out with a smile and a chuckle. Uh, so that would be my, my legacy, a fun laugh. Um, and then on the question of um, of uh, thinking like, you know, I had a good answer. I don't remember the question, but I have an answer. Okay. Like what makes me, what makes me do what I do? I think what makes me do what I do is, is the realization that like people are what matters, right? Like after all the accolades, after, you know, the magazine covers and the elections and whatever else might happen. I mean, behind everything is people. Uh, and so I do what I do to empower the people around me whether it's with information, with X, uh, or anything else. I love it, man. You're, you're, uh, you're, more, you're more than just an inspiration. I think you're, you're, going to, you're paving the way and you're leading by example. And um, I'm, it's, an, it's an honor to be connected with you. And uh, I'm excited to see what, 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 what you're going to be doing in the future. So the take care. Thank you so much for being on the show. And I'm, I'm hoping, I'm really hoping that the Better Wealth community can support in any way possible the work that you're doing. And I know that there's a couple of people listening to this that are now inspired to do what they um, need to be doing on this earth. And so thank you. Thanks so much, Caleb. And Better Wealth is lucky to have you and this podcast.
Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review, and share this with the people that you know and love.